Good afternoon and welcome everyone to another episode of Community Relations Corner where we discuss issues of interest and concern to New York's Jewish community and our friends and our neighbors and our partners all over the city. Um, I'm your host, Michael Miller, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York or the JCRC. And on each episode of Community Relations Corner, we are joined by guests representing the political religious, economic, and diverse community leadership in New York, many of whom I've had the true pleasure and honor of getting to know over the course of my tenure here at JCRC NY. Together we'll discuss current events impacting New York's Jewish community and its neighbors, as well as the state of our city, the state of our state, the state of our nation, and at times we even launch into the state of the world. Um, but before we begin, a word from our wonderful sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org for information about their Sabbath and holiday services, weekly Sunday school, and uh, the beautiful spaces available for public rental. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. Once again, visit freesynagogueflushing.org, and we thank them for their sponsorship. And today, today we're going to be talking about some of the most vulnerable people who have faced COVID-19, this horrible pandemic, our seniors, and those who care for them. And to discuss this, uh, we have with us today two of the top executives in the world of Jewish communal service. And I'm very excited to be joined by Catherine Haslanger, the Chief Executive Officer of JASA, the Jewish Association Serving the Aging, and Stuart Kaplan, Chief Executive Officer of Self-Help Community Services, uh, which uh, both of, of these agencies and both of these individuals are colleagues of mine within the UJA Federation of New York Network of, of, of Agencies. And it really is a pleasure, uh, Catherine and, and Stuart, to have you on board. Thank you. Nice Thank to you, Michael. <laughs> um, you're welcome. It's also very interesting, just in terms of, of background and colleague to colleague, um, is that a UJA Federation in its uh, broad network of, of agencies has a, a committee um, that is known as ExecNet. And I, it wasn't that name when I was serving as chair, uh, the name was changed to ExecNet. Um, and uh, when I was chair, I handed the gavel over to Stuart Kaplan and uh, he then chaired it for, co-chaired it for two years. And uh, then Stuart handed the gavel over to, to Catherine, and she is currently the, the co-chair of, of, of ExecNet. So the relationship between uh, the three of us is uh, organizationally incestuous. It's, it's, again, it's great to have uh, wonderful colleagues uh, with whom um, all three of us have, have partnered with each other on a variety of, of projects. Um, so let's begin the conversation today with, uh, we'll start with Catherine talking a little bit about JASA. Um, and frankly, I've always had difficulty. I've been in this job for 30 years plus um, and figuring out like what that acronym actually stands for. Uh, the SA, Jewish Association, I can get, but <laughs> the SA, once you get to senior or serving or serving. whatever it is. Right, I know it's serving, I know it's serving. Anyway, can you tell us a little bit background wise in terms of what JASA is and what it does? 
Sure. Um, JALSA supports 40,000 older New Yorkers to live in the community so that people can be independent, but not alone. And we do that through housing, home care, and a vast array of social and legal services where we're working with seniors so that they can be really engaged and active in their communities so that they can call their own shots in their life. Um, and we are, of course, as you said, really proud to be part of the UJA network and to be partnering with both of you. And, and JASA functions within the eight counties or the five boroughs, Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk, and Westchester, or just the five boroughs, or where? Um, primarily within New York City, um, mostly four boroughs with just a little bit of uh, work in Staten Island, and then a little bit of work on Long Island. Okay, thank you. And we'll turn it now to, to Stuart, again, some background on self-help community services. Uh, well, good afternoon again. Uh, self-help, it's ironic uh, that we are speaking now because self-help was born out of crisis, the crisis of the Holocaust in 1936, and began serving people who were fleeing persecution and then people who ultimately were Holocaust survivors and do so to this day. In the mid-60s, self-help began serving a broader population beyond uh, the Holocaust, and that coincided with the creation of Medicaid and Medicare in this nation. And uh, our services uh, include, similar to JASA, uh, services of affordable housing, home care services, social work services, um, many case management programs, and uh, a variety of face-to-face -face, um, programs that are serving clients in their homes so that people can remain independent and live with dignity. We do serve uh, Long Island as well as the five boroughs of New York and uh, are coming up on our 85th anniversary really? this year in 2021. So wow. we're a few days away, Michael. Wow. And Catherine, how, how many years has JASA been in existence? We celebrated our 50th anniversary just a couple of years ago. And we were started um, when Jewish philanthropy realized that they were supporting hospitals, they were supporting nursing homes. But even 50 years ago, people really wanted to be in the community and that it took a broad range of services to provide that kind of support. Um, we're going to thank you. We're going to talk about community in, in a moment. I just want to go back to Stuart in regard to uh, Holocaust survivors. Um, do we have any estimate of, of how many Holocaust survivors there still are um, with us uh, here in the New York metropolitan area? In the New York area, there are approximately 35,000 survivors, hmm. average age of about 82. Uh, youngest would be a survivor that's born in 1945, right at the end of the war. And uh, that is roughly a little less than half the population of the entire United States, which has about 80,000 um, survivors uh, in the US. Oh, yeah, um, and, and their needs clearly are, are acute. And um, I, I thank both of you for the service that you're providing uh, to the senior community. And let, let's talk about the current struggles during the, the pandemic. Um, and if you could just, walk me through some of the most poignant struggles that your clients have been facing over nearly a year uh, since the pandemic has, has hit uh, the New York area and it hit it very hard as we all know back in, in March and, and April. Uh, let's first talk about uh, social isolation. Catherine, you started talking about it before in terms of, of community. Um, 
uh, how difficult has it been for within the framework of, of social isolation? And let's go one more step beyond that in terms of, of access to food and, and food security. Um, have the challenges uh, increased dramatically or uh, not? <laughs> uh, the, the challenges have increased exponentially during this period because we're talking about while we, we while we certainly have some homebound clients and they they have a whole set of challenges particularly around food that we'll talk about a lot of the folks that we work with are used to being active and out there in the community and engaged and helping other people and seeing other people and engaging really in in some in meaningful work and during this period I mean, we can all sort of relate to what it's been like of, of losing control, of having so much uncertainty of just how to navigate getting the basic things we need, having the particular fear of knowing for older adults that they are especially vulnerable and that if they get sick, they are likely to get a, a much more serious case and to have much more serious ramifications. But, and, and to be dealing with that anxiety at a point where you're no longer able to see friends and family the way you were, that you aren't able to have people visiting and, and be out interacting in the way that you were. So that that social isolation, it's more than just, oh, that's too bad. Social isolation leads to anxiety and depression, and it becomes physical. It puts you at a higher risk for heart disease, for stroke. Um, it really, and, and in some cases, it pushes seniors who are feeling really desperate to make potentially risky decisions because of that sense of desperation. Um, so those are those are the kinds of challenges that we have been trying to meet in, in a variety of ways. And when, when we talk about food and food insecurity in New York, even in the before times, hunger was an enormous issue for older adults. People estimated that one in 10 seniors were hungry and even more didn't know for sure where their next meal was gonna be coming from. In the early days of the pandemic and in many points since then, seniors were told not to go out, that it was dangerous to do their own shopping. And if you can remember those, some of those months, you know, even if you had a computer and a credit card, it wasn't so easy to arrange for delivery to get the groceries that you needed. There are a lot of seniors who don't have either one of those things. Mm. Um, and during that time, the calls to our helpline tripled. Um, mm. There were a lot of things that we needed to do differently after yeah. that. And, and, and Stuart, at, at Self-Help, have you found uh, the, the same challenges that uh, Jess has been finding? Uh, certainly, uh, serving a similar population, uh, social isolation, uh, totally agree, has been exacerbated by, by the pandemic. We should keep in mind that social isolation is something that existed prior to the pandemic. Um, there are seniors, there are older adults, uh, and there are younger adults who are at home because of physical disabilities or physical issues. Um, in, in their homes, such as stairways that can't be navigated. And so social isolation existed. We all now, it's been added to everybody's lexicon in this, in this last year. So we are all now very comfortable talking about what it means to feel socially isolated. But for an older adult, it goes beyond because they have children, grandchildren, and families who they rely on, who they count on, 
in order to remain connected to the community. And when that connection is broken, it leads to depression and mental health issues, physical issues, um, which might result in the slip and the fall that will end up having somebody in a, in a hospital. We all know hospitals are not the place, especially we, we don't want to be there generally, but especially we don't want to be there now. And so it adds uh, additional concerns uh, to the population. The, uh, we also have had, uh, we're talking about the pandemic and, and poignant moments um, at self-help, we have suffered a number of lives lost. Um, over the course of the pandemic, uh, early in March, April, May, uh, we were seeing um, people uh, leaving us in, in extraordinary numbers that we had never seen before. Hmm. And we talk about caring for our clients one person at a time. While we serve thousands of clients, our social workers, our home care workers, our nurses are in the homes of each of these individuals one at a time. And when we lost a life, I was making calls. I was calling the staff who were involved in those individuals' lives. And the most touching moments that are with me to this day, and I'm sure will be with me always, is speaking with a staff member who was watching over, caring for, uh, a client that was then lost. And that staff member typically would know a family member as well. And so um, working with our staff to support them throughout this pandemic, through losses of their own personally, yeah. as well as losses professionally, has been uh, a, a real challenge. Um, and yet has been very rewarding. I mean, what Stuart is saying is really important to, to underscore that um, if you look at where a lot of our services are, it's the map of where COVID burned the hottest, particularly in the early days. And our staff often live close to our housing sites, our program sites in, in those same neighborhoods. So they were experiencing the personal losses of friends and family. They were dealing with the illness and the loss among clients and and it was it it has been an extraordinarily challenging time and yet i know both at self-help and at jasa people have just shown amazing commitment amazing resilience um and i know that we're both looking for all the ways that we can to make sure that we're supporting folks and that we're really looking out into the future about how we can all repair this is this is a there's going to be a lasting impact um to what we've all been through during these months as, as a, um, a chaplain, a former military chaplain, I was served as a chaplain for the, uh, the Red Cross um, after 9-11, um, and some of my colleagues at JCRC did the same. Uh, we, we all were cognizant of what was needed at the time for the caregiver, uh, care for the caregiver. Some of us spent uh, nights uh, down at Ground Zero, as an example. Uh, when the plane went down in, out, in, out in Queens, I was out at... Uh, Kennedy Airport dealing with uh, the families who uh, lost loved ones on, on that plane. It's, it's, it's very devastating work um, and very draining. And we're, we're all very, we should all be very concerned for how the caregivers 
uh, are impacted by this. Are, are there programs uh, at both of your agencies dealing with uh, this uh, crisis of the moment, uh, which led to, as Stuart started out by, by saying, uh, of, of significant numbers of clients passing away. And of course the caregivers um, uh, lost the, the, the individuals whom they were caring for. Uh, how did they wrestle uh, with that pain? Uh, for, for self-help perspective, uh, yeah. first we should need to recognize that our caregivers, our staff, are heroes. Mm. Yes, we've heard that term uh, from everybody, from the grocery store person to the Uber driver to the doctor and the nurse. Uh, our caregivers are in the homes of individuals, and they've continued to go into the homes in many cases. And so what they are feeling, we recognized early on, needed additional su support beyond anything that we had provided before. And um, adjustments to, from, from benefit policies to insurance policies for employees that we uh, made more lenient so that they could take more advantage of it, to mental health policies to uh, our own uh, you know, creation of Zumba classes and exercise classes. Um, but most of all, I believe what we did at Self-Help was we increased communication amongst staff exponentially in a variety of ways from one-on-ones to town halls, to written materials, to two-way communications to emergency response teams that were available 24 hours a day to answer any question uh, a staff member would have. The best thing I think that we did, and I believe would be borne out if, if we asked, is that we opened up communications, met staff where they were, and found out their needs, and then as best we could address them in a time of crisis. Right. Catherine, do you want to weigh in on that? I think, I mean, all the things that Stuart, Stuart said are so important. And as part of that communication, part of what com we're communicating is gratitude um, and mm -hmm. empathy that we, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly what everybody's going through, I, um, but just an, an understanding of this is a really challenging time and we're gonna get through this together. Um, being flexible as we possibly can about how the work gets done and as supportive as we possibly can about providing um, the tools and the, and the, the um, mechanisms for, for doing the caregiving, for reaching out to, to, to working with the community in the way that, that people want to um, be able to do that work. And to be able to talk about these issues in ways that we don't necessarily talk about them in usual times. And that may be one of the things that comes out of this um, that actually serves us well going forward. And then I think we also, just because there are people who, while many were able to do remote work and we had new tools for that, there were a lot of folks who needed to continue to provide care in the home, to make, to the home health aides who, who were providing that very intimate personal care to social workers who needed to continue to 
go out and do a risk assessment or or act as the, the legal guardian for someone in the community. For those folks, you know, we tried to provide a little bit of a differential, a little bit of a of, uh, combination about their transportation and how they moved around just to, to make sure that we were making it um, as possible as we could for them to, to do the caregiving that they wanted to do. Um, thank you. Is there any one story that jumps out at you that you could share with, uh, with our, our listeners? Um, uh, I'm sure that there are innumerable incidents that have uh, come across your respective desks, uh, but um, might, might there be just one, speaking about poignancy, might there be one poignant moment that uh, either one of you or both of you can share uh, with our viewers? Whoever wants to go first? Stuart, you started. <laughs> sure, sure, happy to. Um, well, one of the, uh, speaking of Holocaust survivors and uh, social isolation, obviously social isolation for any isolation for survivors takes on a meaning and brings up uh, the horrors of, of years gone by. And so we never want a Holocaust survivor to be alone. And uh, one of our survivors from Bergen-Belsen, uh, then off to Sweden, and ultimately in Brooklyn, uh, is lost her husband. And uh, we had encouraged her um, always to attend our coffee houses. So self-help runs, uh, coffee houses for survivors uh, all year through. And um, she never wanted to attend the coffee houses and then her husband passed away. Uh, we continued to pursue coffee houses. This is pre-pandemic, uh, I should say, because those were terminated during the uh, uh, pandemic. And she began, and then because of the pandemic, we discontinue our coffee houses and we managed to put them on virtually. And when she joined the virtual coffee, we couldn't do it immediately uh, as we were figuring out uh, what we needed to do. But when she joined the first coffee house virtually, the smile on her face mm. and the way she prepared to be on camera for the first time, which she knew not exactly what she was getting into, but along with the 40 or 50 other survivors on that event, um, I just I went to everybody's heart and tears to people's eyes uh, yeah. to see her rejoicing at a time after what she had just gone through. That's a beautiful story. My, my sister, Deb, um, works at the claims conference and she is uh, actually engaged in some of those coffee houses across uh, the country, mm -hmm. a little bit around, around the world on behalf of, of the claims conference. So I certainly recognize the value of what you just described. Uh, Catherine, a story? So I, this isn't exactly a story, but one of the things that we've we've gone virtual in a lot of ways, and there's you know 200 classes a week um, out of the what had been the senior centers off of off of those platforms, but there are a lot of folks who 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 for whatever reason either they don't have the internet or the or the device or it just doesn't work for them. You know, it's not for zooming is not for everybody, um, and we had a lot of folks in that situation where we really wanted and needed to be connected and our staff have been making 
literally thousands, I think 67,000 phone calls. But but there was something else that we started because there were also all uh, so many people who contacted us who wanted to volunteer, but they we were reluctant to do things that would put them in face-to-face contact. Um, we weren't sure exactly how to d- deal with this, the, the digital divide, the gap. Yeah, right. And so we matched people up as, as to start friendships over the phone, which sounds very old fashioned and corny, but they've really burgeoned into, they're not, it's not just like a, I'm calling to see how you are. Is everything okay? Yeah. Do you need anything? Bye. These are amazing friendships that have blossomed and deepened over the course of all of these months. And it started that we asked people initially when they were volunteering to make a commitment of at least, you know, a couple of months so that it wasn't just a fly by night flash in the pan sort of things, but it's, you know, eight, eight, 10 months later. Right. And we're, and these, and, and to see the way those relationships have evolved and, and also to say that it's something that people can volunteer people who are, homebound who in many ways are receiving the help they can also volunteer to be the the person who's going to reach out who's going to be the outgoing one and to just sort of have that as a way of saying even in this crazy time everybody has strengths and everybody has needs and we can meet each other um, and support each other in, in a in a really powerful way Oh, well, I, I think you've really touched on the subject matter I really want to get into a little bit, which is technology, considering here we are um, engaging in this conversation on a webcast or utilizing uh, a platform that we heard of uh, called Zoom, uh, but maybe we dabbled in it a little bit, but essentially we live on it, uh, this and, and WebEx and uh, Google Meet and all different kinds of platforms. Um, but anybody who's 75, 80 and older might have some more challenges than those who are of younger ages in dealing with these platforms to bring people together. It goes back to your point, Catherine, of just getting uh, on, on the old fashioned telephone. Um, but what can your respective agencies do in, in order to, uh, to bridge that, that that divide, that, that technical divide, techno- technological divide uh, between where uh, technology is and, and uh, where old practices are, are just entrenched. Stuart? Uh, so, so we have uh, established a program called the Virtual Senior Center, which uh, was created again, pre-pandemic to deal with social isolation. And essentially it is a program that brings originally the activities of senior center into the living room of an isolated older adult. And uh, now it brings more than just the activities of the senior center since that has ceased uh, and brings uh, a facilitated program, everything from uh, learning how to cook to learning, doing a, a tour in another country. Somebody can be facilitating from another country. Um, we, prior to museum closing, we had docents in museums uh, and a whole host of programming that goes on um, with facilitators. The myth, and I call it a myth and I, I recognize it's not for everybody, but the myth that older adults do not wanna use technology. Yeah. I am guessing that people seeing this program um, who are over 60, 65, 70 years old, 
know many people that are using technology, certainly telephones, if, if not more. And we have put together uh, a division with staff who assist older adults to be able to use this technology. And it has become very successful, especially since the pandemic. We have had calls from uh, not only throughout New York State, uh, but other states uh, for its availability. And uh, we have recently increased the capacity of the Virtual Senior Center so that it can take on uh, thousands of people um, at the same time. We're working um, with the State Home Care Association, um, as well as with city agencies to make it available throughout New York State and New York City, as well as privately to assisted living programs, uh, housing companies, um, and others that have congregate activities. Thanks. So I think um, in addition to what Stuart's describing, which is a just a wonderful program. Um, I think one of the, the other things to note is the way that we've been able to use technology to support some of the other services. Um, and in particular, we have a new partnership in our, or not so new now, in our home care program yeah. with a clinical services and technology company that's bringing extra clinical support into the home at a time mm -hmm. when home health aides and, and family caregivers are facing more questions and more uncertainty. So we're really excited to be able to expand the, the use of technology in that way, and also to experiment in different set in, in um, some of our, our housing locations and some of our other programs, just experiment during this time with different kinds of devices and different ways of providing that initial setup set and support so that we can have some lessons to build on in the future. Um, different things work well for different people and really trying to understand that in a, in a more nuanced way, I think will really service well into the future. Yeah, and thank you. And speaking about, about the future, we all know that there will be a new mayor of the city of New York in, in just a year's time. The election will have happened already. Uh, uh, you're from November. Um, and in fact, everybody's looking at June, which is when the Democratic primary is going to happen as to who the Democratic candidate is, is going to be. And that's challenging enough, but we're not going to talk about real politics, but we're talking about policies. Um, what is it that uh, both of you within the senior care uh, world would like to see implemented in New York in order to increase your ability to care for seniors as well as to care for the caretakers. Uh, Catherine? I would love to see two things happen when he or she takes office. He or um, he. Yeah. <laughs> one, one would be um, the digital dealing with the digital divide now and for all. And it's not just, I want to be preface this by saying it's not just about seniors because kids for remote schooling, um, adults for re um, remote work and for looking for a job if you don't have one right now and older adults for maintaining connections and working age adults to connect with the, the, older family member or older neighbor that they're worried about. Everybody needs affordable broadband access. It's, we need, you know, you need water, you need electricity, you need affordable broadband access. And to be able to do that on a community basis for 
everybody is absolutely essential to our future. And that's, I think it's really important for that to be community-wide top of the list. And then just one more thing, and I'll be quiet and have Stuart jump in. (laughs) The other thing is, you know, it's lovely to have everybody talking about essential workers and clapping for essential workers. It's very nice. Let's respect and pay essential workers. And let's understand that essential workers are home care workers. Essential workers are social workers who've been going out into the community and making home visits and facing risky situations this entire time. They are every bit as essential as some of the other folks that we talk about to the safety net, to the fabric of our community. And we really need to pay them in an appropriate way and give them the respect that they have earned They're the folks who enable people to live independently, to stay in charge of your own life. And that's that's just such an important thing to actually go beyond the clapping and and put in a policy that's going to mean that people can, good people can afford to make the choice to do this work and stick with it. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Amen to that. Uh, Stuart? Amen to that. I vote for both of those as well. (laughs) And I would hope that the next mayor uh, takes this opportunity that, you know, there's been a, a highlighter uh, run through the older population uh, given their vulnerability during the pandemic. So we have focused on them considerably. What we need is a master plan for taking care of older adults in the city. Uh, I think we need it nationally as well, but starting in the city with a new mayor, I, I think it would be a, a terrific first step Older adults are not a monolithic population. We refer to them with words of elderly and senior and older adults, but a 60-year-old is not an 85-year-old, and we know 85-year-olds that behave like they are 60 years old and vice versa. And so we need to design a master plan that meets people um, where they are at the pace they are moving. Uh, We refer to it as self-help as aging on pace. Uh, You could be aging uh, at a chronological number, but you're really aging at a developmental number. So we would love to see a master plan that brings resources and services um, to uh, the older adult population throughout the city. Um, And secondly, uh, we do believe that affordable housing is the basis of all services and particularly for low income older adults. We're just gonna be asking you about affordable housing. So (laughs) you got it first, okay. Then we we should put that high on the list. Um, Catherine and I uh, both know and others who provide this service uh, and buildings around the city uh, for low income older adults. Uh, There are waiting lists, thousands of people long. And when you're see a list that has thousands of people in front of you and you are 75 years old when you're coming onto that list, it's to say the least disheartening. So affordable housing would be high on my list as well. We had we had the, uh, the instance of in the before times of welcoming a new tenant into one of our buildings on her 98th birthday. Oh. And that just that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, that to to Stewart's point, the waiting lists are so long. Um, it's 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 an enormous need. Right. Uh, absolutely. Um, are are there any? Um, is there any 
borough in the city, let's, let's focus on the city as opposed to the island of Westchester for the moment. Are, are there any boroughs in the city that are more senior friendly than, than other boroughs or is essentially wherever it is that you, you re reside, uh, the, the services are relatively similar? Um, it, it, on balance, um, are, are seniors better cared for uh, in one borough over, over another? Um, and uh, when you're talking about, uh, Catherine, about somebody moving into a facility, is there, are there any more desirable uh, facilities, meaning borough-wise, not specific building, um, that uh, seniors are, are looking for? Well, Michael, of course, I was going to say that, you know, any building that is either managed by self-help or JASA would be among the most desirable possible places um, that somebody could live. But the way I want to answer your question is actually not to answer your question, but to say there's a reason that sometimes people move out of New York and then they come back because New York has a richer array of home and community-based supports. Certainly, we have astronomical housing costs, we have food insecurity, we have plenty of problems. Um, but the safety net here for aging and, and for older adults to be able to, to stay in the community is, is really extraordinary and it's different here than it is in many, many other parts of the country. And as much as we struggle and as many problems as we encounter in doing the work um, that, that self-help and JASA are committed to doing, it's important to, to remember that context um, as well. Oh, that's very important. Stuart? I, I, would, I would just add uh, also, I, I wouldn't pick a borough, but it does have to do with location. So where older adults are living in relation to transportation, shopping, uh, availability of me medical services, uh, those are all factors that when we are looking at building a new building for older adults that we take into consideration uh, because it, it is that um, ease of access for mm -hmm. the daily living activities or right. medical necessities, uh, which are so important um, for an older adult uh, if, when they are going to uh, make that big move, and it is a big move where, from wherever they are moving yeah. into a new location. Yeah, well, you, you spoke a moment ago about the availability of, of medical services. Um, so let's talk about the, the vaccine, um, which of course started rolling out uh, this past week. Um, what are you both advocating for uh, within the framework of the work that, that you are doing, not only for your clients, but, but also for your, your caregivers and are your voices being heard? I'm guessing we're on the same page on this one. Um, our home care work is uh, that we've spoken about um, should be uh, first on lines with, with all other first on lines for, for the vaccines. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it has not been clear where they um, and when they will be receiving uh, their vaccine. So we have certainly been advocating for home care workers who are, again, in people's homes. And as Catherine mentioned, many of our social workers who need to make emergency visits, they're frontline workers. Um, they should be receiving it. And that is what we have been advocating for uh, both at the state and city levels, uh, where both self-help and JASA are members of a variety right. of associations. Yeah. Um, and we are working hard advocating for that. I, I know there's a lot of clamor for vaccines. 
Um, and uh, we, we would love to see uh, a more organized, uh, I, I must say, because uh, at the moment, you know, we're responsible for thousands of employees and we don't have that answer right now. And uh, we wish we did. We are very much on the same page. And just as you think about what is the wor work that a home care worker is doing, there's no option for social distancing. I mean, these are this is someone who is literally hands-on, um, performing very intimate assistance. And the idea that they wouldn't be considered first responders and at high risk is doesn't make any sense at all. So absolutely, we're joined um, in that advocacy. Um, I became a, aware yesterday that the scams are starting, mm. that, that, which is just astonishing to me that in this moment, on this topic, there could be people taking advantage. Um, so part of what we're trying to do also is just make sure that people understand if somebody's calling you on the phone, that you know, you're the the um the way to get the vaccine is not going to be that you're going to get a phone call and you're going to have to pay somebody a bounty or you're going to have to give a stranger your social your social security number. That that's that's not the road um, to getting a vaccine and to just to try to be as we have been throughout a source of information that people can trust, communicating in a way that's easy to understand in a lot of languages. Um, so that people, particularly folks who are more isolated, have a way of getting accurate information and have a place to turn um, where they trust that the answers are going to be, you know, solid answers that they can believe in. I think that's a, a really important role that we can play because, because we are in these communities. Our staff are known to people. They have relationships that span years. Um, and at a time like this, that's such an important strength um, that we can really offer and work from. And in that very uh, same regard is that um, the aged seniors um, are targeted by scam artists regularly. Um, and in, in, uh, under these circumstances, I, I would imagine that the temptation uh, is significant. Um, uh, are, are the clients that you have uh, listening to what's coming from institutions such as, as yours, um, are they receptive to, to those uh, uh, accurate uh, factual messaging or are, are they unfortunately um, just uh, too desirous of getting the, the vaccination uh, and can uh, fall for some of these uh, scam artists? Oh, I think people are listening. And I, I think the concern is that, you know, we have, there's so many people that we're connected to, older adults and caregivers, terrific, similarly for self-help. And then we find a time, and, and in usual times, there are many, many older adults who are completely able to figure it out on their own. They can piece it together in usual times. When we get to times like this that aren't usual times, and their usual safety net of friends and family isn't able to come to their um, aid the way they usually do. Those are the moments when those are folks who we aren't connected to, but this is the moment when we need to be. And so I think going forward, we somehow need to figure out how to make ourselves you know, better known, easier to get access to, so that so that we can also provide that support to the folks that we don't have these long, long relationships um, 
and and long long previous knowledge um, with that that's, that's something that we got to figure out for the future. Stuart, do you want to weigh in on that? Um, I, the, the the scams existed pre-vaccine. Uh, again, mm -hmm. you know, when we think of what happens at the time of the pandemic, there's usually an analogous uh, something that has been going on previously. And uh, elder abuse and scams involving um, elder abuse, so which you know could be both phone calls as well as physical abuse, um, are something that we have watched out for forever. The vaccine, so we are the trusted voice, as as Catherine said, for our clients, but we can't be there 24 hours a day, and so the education part, the proactive phone calls um, to our clients to say watch out for um, and other communications and other programs that we have to try to have them avoid it um, is what we do routinely. The vaccine may be a new challenge because it, because it is new. Uh, when something is novel, uh, the scam folks and scam artists uh, come up with new ways of doing things. And so we are watching out for them, um, at, just as Catherine said. Um, older adults um, sometimes are susceptible, especially if they don't have the people that they normally rely on available to them. That's where <laughs> self-help and JASA shine. And so we're there for them. Yeah. And, I, and I think one of the ways that we're there for them, and I, I, I really think this is true for, for both of our organizations, is that we really try to work from individual strengths. We really try to see the, the folks who we are working with as people who have both strengths and needs. And to the extent that you can work from somebody's strengths, you're helping to build their confidence, and they're in a better position when that scam thing happens. They're, they're not feeling as vulnerable. They're not out questioning their own judgment quite so much. They've got a little bit more confidence and a little bit more resilience. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's another way that we can really be supportive. That's oh, very, very helpful. Uh, so um, kind of wrapping up, uh, what are the lessons that have been learned over the past uh, 10 months in essence, uh, since the pandemic uh, hit that uh, both of your agencies would apply moving forward, uh, now that we see that um, a, an effective vaccine is, is now circulating, it'll take months uh, for uh, normalcy to return, but uh, there is a flicker of light at the end of, of this very dark tunnel. Um, uh, what what uh, lessons uh, can be applied uh, to once we emerge uh, from uh, this crisis and to ensure the, uh, the excellence of both of uh, the, the agencies that uh, you represent uh, will only be enhanced. Stuart? Um, new words, working from home, working remotely. <laughs> uh, again, you know, the pandemic being the great equalizer, regardless of whether or not you are a social worker, a home care worker, or stockbroker. Um, we have all learned that we can work from home. And so uh, we do believe there are lessons to be learned there. We are examining them, examining them now. Um, I, I do not believe that we are going to be 
98% working from home as we are doing now, but I think there are definitely lessons to be learned there. Um, and secondly, uh, communications, uh, being closer to our employees, despite the fact that they're spread out all over uh, New York, um, we have learned new ways to communicate back and forth with thousands of employees. And we intend to capture those new methods and use them going forward. Okay, thank you. Okay. We, it's amazing how much you can get done without commuting, isn't it? It's a really, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really, <laughs> I think in, in addition to, um, to the, or sort of wrapped around the things that Stuart said, um, this whole experience has really reinforced that at the essence, our organizations, the work we do, it's all about people who are caring about and for people. And in order to do this work in an excellent way, we need to attract and retain people who are really capable and committed and want to do this work. And so we need to be an organization where everybody is seen and heard and feels that their voice is respected so that we can be that organization so that we can have this very strong and resilient um, workforce to do what has been very, very challenging work. And I, I think making that, you know, sort of the front and center to everything that we do going forward um, will be really important. I, I fully agree and thank you. Um, I, one thing that we haven't touched on um, and that is that both of your agencies are non-sectarian under Jewish auspices, but they're both non-sectarian. So you're serving the Jewish community and the non-Jewish non community. And, and before we, we wrap up this piece, uh, I just want to get a sense from uh, both of you with regard to the cultural uh, sensitivity that the agencies have for the, the clients as well as uh, for, for the caregivers, considering the array of, of cultures that we have uh, in the New York metropolitan area, something that uh, Bob Kaplan on our, our staff uh, is an expert in um, uh, of, of cultural competency. Um, so um, is, is that something like during this pandemic that uh, has uh, manifested itself um, or in, in essence have your clients uh, pretty much followed a, a similar pattern? Um, I, I would say that uh, it's been a, a similar pattern. Uh, the clients uh, have been the clients and our staff are the staff. Um, cultural competency is something that we espouse from day one at the recruitment uh, stage uh, or whatever position it would be, as well as through all of our trainings. Um, more than half of our staff are, are representative of minority black, brown communities. Um, certainly, um, uh, our client base also reflects that. Um, we have a, a very large number, 25% of our population are Holocaust survivors, and certainly um, the, the, the cultural competence uh, for caring for survivors uh, is significant, and special training uh, programs uh, exist at self-help for that. Mm -hmm. um, but we have uh, both Jewish and non-Jewish um, uh, staff who, who care for our survivors. Um, and competently so, uh, without question. Um, so uh, I'm not sure the pandemic has given rise to, uh, to new issues. 
Uh-huh. Okay, Catherine, thank you. Um, JASA has a diverse staff. In order to do the work that we do in all the parts of New York, we need to look and speak um, like our fellow New Yorkers, um, and we try really hard to do that. And I think that um, one of the things that comes out is across different communities, I think hopefully what people are seeing is that with age comes a certain amount of perspective, some strength, and all of that helps build resilience. And that having active older adults in the community is something that helps the whole community, that is a benefit to everybody. Um, it's not just about the aging, but it's really about a stronger community overall. Um, and I, I think that's something else that we also wanna really help people understand um, going forward. That's, that's vitally important. And in fact, uh, JCRC is just about to launch a Resilient Cities program uh, partnering with, with Tel Aviv, um, which has been focusing on, on the same, uh, the same uh, issue of, of ensuring resilience. And we have to ensure that our, our senior population are as resilient as our younger population and living under uh, various circumstances. Uh, that's, that's life in the real world and certainly is life, life in New York. And I can't thank you both enough uh, for joining me on Community Relations Corner. And I am now going to thank our sponsor once more and then come back to you uh, for a last word uh, from uh, each of you to share with our viewers. Uh, so uh, let me first thank our wonderful sponsor, the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to learn a, about a wide array of their programming and of the beautiful sanctuary, social hall, and meditation garden are available for rent. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to learn more about their Shabbat and holiday services and weekly Sunday school. And once again, visit, please, freesynagogueflushing.org. Shout outs to their president, Ed Schauder, who's a member of the JCRC board, to their executive director and cantor, Alan Brava, and their rabbi, Jeffrey Gale. Also a shout out to our incredible production team, the three Gs, our chief operating officer, Noam Gilboard, program coordinator, Rebecca Grossman, and executive associate, Jen Glick. And now with all that time for the both of you to think about what your last word would be, uh, we'll go, ladies first, uh, we'll, we'll go to, to Catherine uh, to just share a, a parting uh, sentiment with our viewers, please. Okay, <laughs> um, this, this has been quite a year um, and my parting word is going to be hope. We've been through a lot, we've learned a lot and there are some really, there's important work ahead of us. It's clearer now than ever that we need to have a just society. We need to finally tear down um, the, the strictures of racism in our society. We need to think about aging in a new way that has not, that, that people have been so restricted and so narrow about the way they've thought about it. And we really need to open all of that up. And maybe in this time that's just rattled everything and turned everything upside down, maybe that gives me some hope that going forward, we'll be able to really support each other and work together in ways that we haven't in the past and that that will be good for all of us. Thank you. Thanks so much. And uh, Stuart, a few days before 2021, last word. <laughs> I, I would uh, just 
add to the word of resilience that Catherine just put out there as well, in addition to hope. Uh, I started by talking about our founding, um, serving Holocaust survivors, and one of the resiliency uh, areas that we have seen is in the way our survivors are able to continue to drive what we do. We have found that during the pandemic through their humor and their grit. And a board member of ours uh, by the name of Ilsa Melamed um, recently made a wonderful uh, contribution to us because of her experience during the Holocaust in the transport and when she came to the US, she had no place to live. And um, she went from location to location, family, friends, um, finally settled, married, and uh, became very successful uh, with her, she and her husband. Um, her support to self-help recently resulted in the creation of the Melamed Institute for Affordable Housing. Mm -hmm. And that will help us to build and advocate for affordable housing in the city of New York. And so that lesson of resiliency that self-help has had as its raison d'etre um, from the Holocaust continues to serve us and will continue to serve older adults uh, into the future, thanks to what we have learned and what we have received uh, through the Holocaust. Wow, thank you very much. Uh, thank you both uh, for just an inspiring uh, one hour together. Uh, this has really been terrific. Um, and uh, I, I just have, have to, to offer the gratitude not only of JCRC and myself personally, but I think of, of all of our viewers and frankly, I think should be all of New York for the heroic roles that both of your agencies have, have been uh, playing uh, during this crisis um, and the outstanding leadership that both of you have shown, and I'll just say uh, from a personal slash uh, professional perspective, uh, the wonderful friendship that I'm blessed to have uh, with, with both of you as colleagues. So again, thank you, uh, Catherine Hasslinger from JASA. Uh, thank you, Stuart Kaplan from Self-Help Community Services. Thank you to our, our viewers, whether you're live, you're watching this uh, later on one of our other platforms, uh, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, whatever it might be. Um, just uh, a, a program note for next week, the first week of, of January, um, our guest and uh, Stuart and uh, Kat Catherine might want to listen in. Our, our guest will, will be the new borough president of Queens, uh, Donovan Richards. That'll be... <laughs> That'll be uh, on, uh, on January 6th, uh, that's Wednesday, January 6th at, at 1 p.m. Um, and look forward to having him uh, in conversation with us on Community Relations Corner and having uh, many uh, viewers uh, live and uh, subsequently. Anyway, uh, I wanna wish everybody a, a wonderful end of uh, 2020, very, very difficult and challenging year and uh, the, the hope and resilience that we need to have, as our guests have outlined, uh, moving into 2021 in, in just a, a few days. Uh, shalom to all. Look forward to seeing you again. Be well. Thank you. Thank you.